Go ahead and take your Bibles and open up to Isaiah chapter 6. I would imagine by now you're somewhat familiar with the format that we've been doing on our note sheets, although what we'll be doing this morning is similar to what has happened in the past. The note sheet this morning will be primarily a resource for you if you want to do further study. We're going to spend our time just in essentially one passage in Isaiah chapter 6, so don't look at all of these passages and think there's no way we're going to get through them, um, because we certainly wouldn't. But the first thing I want you to kind of put before your thinking is that when we come to this particular attribute of who God is, the fact that God is holy, I want you to resist the temptation to think that holiness is something that God does. We have to remember that holiness is His nature. It is who He is in His character. And so when you take all of His attributes, remember that they're not separate and distinct They're not in, we have to look at them in different categories because our mind can only take in so much at one time. But God is every part of all of his attributes together perfectly in one unit. And so it might be helpful for you to consider God's holiness as the sum total of everything that he is. His beauty and his majesty is defined by the fact that he is perfectly holy. So let's begin with our definition this morning at the top of your note sheet. This is from Grudem's Systematic Theology. Pretty brief, but the implications that he has for us are significant. Grudem says this, God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. So God is separate. As I was looking at all of the different definitions that scholars, systematic theologies, Bible dictionaries, commentators, as they were all weighing in on the subject of God's holiness, that was the one theme that kept being repeated everywhere I looked, is that God is separate. He is distinct. He is not just the greatest in one category, he is in a complete different category altogether. And so when God is is other than any of his creation, then we start to understand the fact that his holiness is very challenging for us to even consider. He's different from us. Remember last Sunday when we looked at Psalm chapter 50 that the rebuke that God gave to his people was that God said, you thought that I was just like you. I had a friend of mine that shared with me a number of years ago that as he was growing in his Christian walk, that the one realization for him is that he reflected on the fact that he always kind of saw God as just a big person. So like us, but just greater. And that greatly diminishes who God is. God is not like us at all. He's completely separate. He's distinct. He's different. So don't think of God as just above everyone else, even though that's true. He is completely separated from everything that he has created. And there's nothing that is like him. So I want you to stop and consider what your thoughts of God are. Like if you think of what God is like, how do you picture him? 
Are your thoughts accurate? Are they informed by the scriptures? Or are you able in your, your spiritual growth and maturity to start to recognize that you're, you're trying to assign human characteristics to God? And maybe your own reason, your own logic, you try to figure out who he is rather than having the Bible tell us what he's like. And so God is separate, but it also tells us in the definition that he is separate from sin. That there's nothing in God that is corrupt. There is nothing that can tempt God to do anything sinful. And the definition also says that he is devoted to seeking his own honor. Then we think about the idea of devotion. In our human experience, we can think of examples in our own past where we've taken up a new hobby or pursued some skill, and we were devoted to it for a time, and that kind of fell to the wayside. Or maybe we uh, got bored and and decided to to change our focus. So devotion from a human standpoint is, is pretty inconsistent, but in terms of God pursuing his own honor, he never stops doing it, and he always does it in the, the greatest way possible because he deserves all honor. And so he's going to defend his honor. He will not share his glory with anybody else, which is why if, if you're a person that is struggling with pride and vanity, especially if you belong to him as a child of, of salvation, that he is going to root that out of your life because he will not share his glory with anybody else. And so we need to actually come to the Bible to help our thoughts to be uh, expanded is a better word. Our, Our thoughts to be big enough to consider God's holiness. And the only way that we can do that is for the scriptures to teach us. And so I, as I mentioned, we're going to be spending most of our time in Isaiah chapter 6. So if you're not there, you can, you can turn to the sixth chapter of this incredible book. This is probably considered the definitive passage which describes God's holiness. And so let me read the text to give you some bearings on, on where we're at, and then I'll, I'll give you some context of, of what's actually happening here in this particular passage. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. And uh, just to take in the the full scope of it, we're going to read through verse 13, though our focus this morning will only be up through verse 7. So let's read together. Verse 1, the Word of God says this. It says, The year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant." Houses are without people. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So six chapters into... Isaiah's prophecy, he has this incredible vision. He is transported to this scene of the throne room. There's a little bit of discussion among the scholars whether Isaiah actually went to the temple and then saw a vision, or if this is all somewhere else. It's not really clear, but that the point is, is that he is given this view of God sitting on his throne. And the first thing that he starts with in verse 1 is he gives us a timestamp. What does Isaiah tell us is happening in this context? What's the timestamp in verse 1? Yeah. Yeah, so we have the king. This is the year of his death. His name is Uzziah. And the reason that's significant is because Uzziah had been reigning for 52 years. Now, sometimes we toss numbers around and they, they don't really mean a lot until you stop and think about, if I were to kind of scan the room and, well, remove the youth leaders from the equation, but if I, if I take all of your, your uh, ages and average together, about 15 years old. Some are younger, some are older. But think of all the things that have happened in your life experiences in about 15 years. That's a lot. Now imagine living that 15-year period three and a half times. The king had been sitting on the throne, ruling for 52 years. And he was a good king, which is pretty rare in those days. So the people were comfortable with him. They looked up to him as a spiritual leader. He was a godly man. He brought peace to the land. And so the, the death of the king would have brought a little bit of instability to the nation of Israel. They would have been unsettled seeing that their leader had passed away. And as a side note... The way that Uzziah dies is not good. We won't go into the context of the passage, but in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, we learn that not only did Uzziah die, but he was actually executed by God himself. So you have this godly leader who had become so comfortable with his own godliness that he actually steps into the temple to perform the functions that were only to be done by the priests. He began to burn incense in front of the altar. He had 
had such a high view of himself that he took on this role that was not appropriate. And as he's standing there with the incense in his hand, the priests come in to confront him. And when they tell him that what he is doing is, is wrong and unrighteous, he says he gets very angry with them. And then all of a sudden, leprosy breaks out on his forehead, and he dies a leper. So that's a good reminder, too, that if you're a follower of Christ, that you have to end well. It's easy as a young person to have kind of running on adrenaline and saying, I'm going to stand for Christ, and I'm going to be devoted, and I'm going to walk in his ways, and I want to be obedient. And as, as you get older, you have to remember that you have to end well. This was a godly man who God struck down because of his pride. So he dies. The nation is, is starting to become in turmoil. They're, they're concerned about what's going to happen. And then Isaiah gets the vision of another king. This is the true king. This is God sitting on his throne. And it's Isaiah's reminder that God is in control and he never steps away from his throne. It's a good reminder for us today, even with all the things that are happening in our world currently. As you see things shift and things are unstable and, and you wonder what the, the fabric of our nation is going to look like in just a few years, and regardless, we know that God is sitting on the throne. And so Isaiah gives us three descriptions. It says that God is sitting on his throne. He is lofty and exalted. So there we have him being separate. He is above. He is distinct. He is other than. Then he says that the train of his robe is filling the temple. So if you picture a king who puts on a robe to show, it's like a, a visual of his majesty, of his authority. And the greater the robe, the more glory he has. So Isaiah sees that the robe of, of God, the train of God's robe is filling the temple. This is unlike any king he has ever seen before. And so this is already a shocking scene for him to go from whatever was happening in, in his, his life on that particular day, and then God takes him in a vision and shows him the throne room. That would have been already overwhelming. And then look what happens in verse 2. It says, Seraphim stood above him, stood above the throne, each having six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So now we come to this picture of these angelic creatures that are around the throne. We don't know much about the seraphim. In the Hebrew, the, the description, the word actually means burning ones. And the Bible actually tells us in, in a number of different passages that there are different types of angelic beings. There's different ranks, there's different... Um, different uh, creations of angels. If you remember in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul is saying that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Do you remember that passage? But against the 
rulers, powers, world forces, spiritual forces of wickedness. He describes four different types of angels. Now, in Ephesians 6, these are fallen angels. These are those who had rebelled against God. But God had created all the angels as holy and unfallen. So there's all different types. You can think about Gabriel, one of the few that we actually get a name of. He was a messenger. Michael, another one with a title, he's a warrior. He's the one that went to battle for the the purpose of, of God's holiness. And so as we think about the seraphim, it's a different type. We don't really know much about them. And it's hard for us to kind of get our minds around what they actually look like. And if you've ever done a Google search, like an image search of angels, whether in Ezekiel or Isaiah or Revelation, you're like, maybe, (laughs) maybe not. Because these these representations in these pictures are, are just a human assumption of what's actually being described here. But what it does tell us is that they have six wings. It says two of their wings covered their face. Now remember, this is, a, this is an unfallen angel. This is a, an angel with perfect purity at the throne of God, and yet even the, the holy angel is covering his face because he doesn't dare to look on God's face directly because he's so close to the throne. And then it says with two he covered his feet, it seems to picture humility. It, it, it might talk about the fact that he is, is a lowly servant at the throne. And then it says, with two wings, he flew. He's ready to do whatever God asks for him and, and to do so quickly. And there's multiple. It doesn't, it doesn't actually tell us how many seraphim there are. There, there are multiple because it says in verse 3, and one seraphim called out to another seraphim. So they're calling out to each other. And the the type of language that's used here seems to describe what's called an antiphonal praise. We've done this actually on our church services here on Sunday morning occasionally. For example, where Jos will read a line and then the congregation will respond with another line. That's the antiphonal type of worship. One person says something and the other person says another thing, whether it's repeating what they said or building upon it. And it seems that the lines that were given here, the statements in verse 3, line 1 might be called out and line 2 might be answered. But regardless of what's happening, the, the seraphim are saying this. They're saying, holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. This really is the the central purpose of the vision, is that we are to be impressed upon the fact that God is holy. And they repeat it three times. It It talks about emphasis, but it also underscores perfection. I want to read for you a quote from Ray Ortland when he describes what's happening in the, the vision here. He says, holy, holy, holy is not just repetition, it is emphasis. It isn't one plus one plus one. It is perfection times perfection 
times perfection. The holiness of God distinguishes himself absolutely, even from the sinless angels. The Bible speaks of the splendor of God's holiness, the majesty of God's holiness, and the incomparability of God's holiness. And he is not just holy. He is holy, holy, holy. Each word boosting the force of the previous one exponentially. No other threefold adjective appears in all of the Old Testament. God is not like us, only bigger and nicer. He is in a different category. There is no other attribute of God's that is repeated three times successively. And so the scriptures are telling us this is the defining attribute and characteristic of who God is and what he's like. And so we're starting to get a glimpse of his holiness. And so it's amazing to me that people think that at the end of their lives, they are going to be able to stand before this sovereign king and he's just going to overlook their sin and let them into heaven. Or even worse, that people think that God doesn't exist. What's going to happen is that the unsaved are going to be exposed because of God's perfection. In fact, they're going to be consumed, which would have been the case with Isaiah if God had not extended him grace. Look what happens here. Verse 4. It says, At the foundations of the thresholds, excuse me, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of, of him who called out. So who did the calling out here? Who just called out? The Lord has not spoken yet. The seraphim. Sometimes we have these pictures of these angelic beings and we have no idea what they're like. Their power. How intimidating it must have been to see these creatures. And just just the angels are speaking and the thresholds are trembling. God hasn't even spoken yet. And then it says that the, the temple was filling with smoke. And so as Isaiah is seeing all this in the vision, we understand his response. Look at verse 5. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah gives three reasons why he's ruined. Now as we track the the context of the book of Isaiah, it does not seem to indicate that this is Isaiah's salvation. The first five chapters seems to indicate that he was already a man of faith who had been saved from his sins. But even as a a saint, he is in God's presence, he sees God's holiness, and his response, the first thing he says is, I'm ruined. And the force of the Hebrew language here, it's talking about the very 
fibers of his being are being pulled apart. He is disintegrating because of God's perfection. And he gives three reasons why this is the case. He says, I'm ruined first because, he says, I am a man of unclean lips. For those of you who were with us last Thursday, we talked about holiness in our words. Isaiah brings up this same issue. His defining sin are his lips and how he talks. The second reason, he says, and I live among a people of unclean lips. I'm in a culture that is so corrupted that my own sin is a problem and I'm surrounded by people that encourage me to sin. And then finally, the the third reason, he says, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is somebody who has already found salvation and he sees God in his holiness and he says, I'm ruined. And unless God had extended his grace to Isaiah, he would have been consumed. Remember, God has not spoken yet. He has not done anything yet. In fact, the next action that we see, verse 6, it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this this has touched your lips, And your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. I want you to picture the last time you were around a campfire. And imagine taking with tongs one of the burning embers and having it placed on your lips. Now, why the lips? What was his confession? He just said, I am a man of unclean lips. But he also is being called to go be a prophet. And his ministry is to speak. He says, I can't even speak about God's holiness unless I'm cleansed. And so God extends this grace, this mercy to Isaiah, and he cleanses him. For those of you who are followers of Christ, even in your service. You have to be clean so that you can represent one who is holy. So Isaiah expands our understanding of of God's holiness. We try to strain to understand what it would have been like for him to be transported into the, the very throne room of God, to think that he was about to be consumed and yet to receive God's mercy and his cleansing. So as we think about the holiness that God possesses, now I want us to think, how does this displayed in Christ? We know that Christ is equal to the Father. Christ is also holy, holy, holy. I want to share with you a couple of verses that tell us this explicitly, but but then we're going to land in a passage that actually links us back to Isaiah chapter 6. But if you are listening to this, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest, this is speaking of Christ, 
We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So Christ has no sin. Later, Hebrews chapter 7, it says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So Jesus is being described exactly the way that we saw in Isaiah chapter 6. In fact, even the demons knew who Jesus was and what he was like. In Mark chapter 1, verse 24, Jesus steps into the synagogue to begin to teach, and there is a demon-possessed man who cries out and says, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It's fascinating to me that a lot of unbelievers will deny who Christ is, and yet the demons know exactly who Jesus is. But in particular with Isaiah chapter 6, I want you to turn to John chapter 12. We see an interchange that Jesus has with with some people during his earthly ministry. And there's a link back to Isaiah chapter 6. Look at verse 35. So Jesus said to them, he's talking to the crowd, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not willing to believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. Verse 40 is a quotation of Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. But then look what it says in verse 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. All of the hymns in verse 41 and 42 is talking of Christ. So when you're in Isaiah chapter 6 and he has this vision of 
God being lofty and exalted and His train filling the temple and the, the seraphim crying out to one another, Isaiah saw Christ on the throne. It's unbelievable. Jesus is perfect in holiness. So what does God's holiness demand of us? I want to take you through a couple of passages where I want you to see how it connects to what is required of, of you. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. We will eventually get back to Matthew chapter 5, or Matthew, Matthew's gospel, in our study on Thursdays. Looking forward to that, as this is such an amazing book as we look directly at the, the earthly life of Christ. But in chapter 5, Jesus has begun his Sermon on the Mount. And if you look at verse 44, Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, he says, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God demands holiness from your life. He demands perfection. It's a command. He doesn't overlook your sin, even as a believer. He doesn't think of it lightly. People oftentimes confuse God's patience with the fact that He doesn't care about sin. So I just want it to be very clear that if you are a follower of Christ, He demands perfection from you. And because that's the case, we need Christ. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are just like Isaiah. We are people of unclean lips. But oftentimes we don't even consider our own condition because we, are, we overlook it too easily. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 18. It says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
So God demands holiness, which we do not have, which is why we need the righteousness of Christ. He is the one that provides it. He is our substitute. He is our sacrifice so that our sins can be forgiven. And so even though you have put your faith in Christ and you walk with him, you follow him, you still know that sin is a battle. And so because of that, we need to go through ongoing confession of sin. Turn back to Psalm chapter 51. If you're trying to get your arms around confession of sin, I would put before you Psalm 32 and also Psalm 51. David is reflecting on his great moral failures and he's confessing his sin before the Lord. Look what he says in verse 10. This is a prayer. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain, with, sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. God demands holiness which is why you need to put your faith in Christ, because otherwise you will be consumed because of his perfection. But even though you've come to salvation in Christ, you still sin, and so you need to constantly confess your sin. Psalm 51 tells us that David prayed that he would have a heart that is created in cleanliness. Turn to 1 John chapter 1. John gives us an encouragement. Verse 9. He says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. So verse 9 encourages us that if you do confess your sin, God will prove himself faithful to cleanse you. But then verse 10 says, if you claim to not have sin, you make God a liar. I would say practically speaking, I've not really encountered too many people that would say that they don't have sin. But I will say that most of us do not confess sin as often as we should. The implication of verse 10, out of the context of verse 9, is that if you do not confess, you don't think you have sin. Or you don't care very much about it. So don't make God a liar by not confessing. But be encouraged that when you do, that he will be faithful to cleanse you. But God's holiness also demands of us that we cannot accuse God of anything. I want you guys to go back to Psalm chapter 145. 
and listen to this fascinating application of, of God's holiness in our own lives. Psalm 145. We'll start in verse 14 for context. This says, The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. Open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His deeds. Isaiah saw God sitting on the throne, lofty, exalted, the sovereign creator of the universe, which means that everything that happens in our life comes from his providence. And so what you cannot do is you cannot accuse God of wrongdoing. What would that look like? It might be phrased differently by different people. But if you're struggling with a situation in life, that's overwhelming. And some people in anger will say, God, why have you done this to me? You're accusing God of doing something unrighteous. Now you can ask God, God, I want to understand. It's the heart attitude that's different. But we can never accuse God of doing anything that is not holy. So we can't accuse him, but we should also be thankful. Look at Psalm chapter 97. Verse 10. Hate evil, you who love the Lord who preserves the souls of his godly ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown like seed for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks to his holy name. So we should be thankful because God is a God of holiness. We should give him praise because of his perfection. That's why we gather this morning as the church, is that you have an opportunity to, to express in a, in a corporate setting through song and through prayers, through discussions with one another in fellowship, and then also putting yourself underneath the teaching of scriptures. Worship God, give thanks to Him because of His holiness, especially this morning as we're going to come to the table and remember that Christ gave His life for us. But the last thing I want you to consider is I, you need to be amazed. Turn to John chapter 1. God's holiness should cause us amazement. So I want you to think of the summary of all the things that we've talked about today. The vision that Isaiah saw the seraphim with an antiphonal chanting of God being holy, holy, holy. That God is not like us. He hates sin. 
God will not look on iniquity. God will not share his glory with anybody else. God will consume the sinful. That he is the sovereign judge who will condemn guilty people. And yet, John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Lord Jesus is the one that was on the throne in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah saw him and was disintegrating because of his sinfulness. It's like, who can approach this God? And yet God took on human flesh and came to us. It's unthinkable that he would do that. And especially as we start our, our meditation on the Advent season, when you think about the coming of Christ, this Holy One who came to live among us, that in and of itself is not something that we can fathom. But he didn't just come. He died sinful people because he's not just holy but he's also a God that loves to save sinners so be amazed at that be thankful for Christ and worship his holy name let's pray together Father as we see Isaiah Isaiah knowing that he's ruined in your presence without your your cleansing, you offer us salvation in Christ, which we don't deserve. Father, that you would come to the unholy. We thank you that you have provided salvation in your Son because there is no other hope for us. Jesus is the only way, so we give you praise. I ask, Father, that you would help us to obey your command to be perfect, and that we can only do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to be people who are quick to confess our sin. I pray that you would help us to never accuse you of doing anything that's wrong. Help us to be thankful for your holiness. And especially as we consider the fact that Christ came and lived among us, we are one that should be, we are people that should be offering you praise and thanksgiving. And so, Lord, help us, knowing that we have been redeemed, help us to tell others that there is a way of escape. And so, Lord, give us opportunities to do that. And now, as we go to the table, I pray that we would go with hearts that have confessed our sin, that we're ready to remember Christ and to proclaim his, his death. Until the day he comes, we pray. And it's in Christ's name we ask. Amen.